0: Alright, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today I'm going to be discussing atrial fibrillation. Okay. I've been vaguely planning to cover AFib at some point, since it's such a common rhythm and we're so often managing it in the outpatient setting, but I was inspired to go ahead and tackle this topic because I recently had a patient with new-onset AFib admitted to me while I was the admitting resident working overnight, so I was forced to grapple with the acute management of new-onset atrial fibrillation myself. I've heard some mixed advice about how to approach the acute management, so my hope here is to set out an algorithm that will be detailed enough to act on clinically and will also be sufficiently grounded in evidence and guidelines to be fairly uncontroversial. After that, I'll of course cover the long-term management of atrial fibrillation as well. But before we dive into the management, let's ground ourselves in the basics. Fibrillation refers to the uncoordinated contraction of muscle fibrils. When the atria fibrillate, instead of creating the synchronized squeezing motion they ought to make to pump blood forward into the ventricle, they simply quiver and shake. This makes for an EKG that is pretty easy to recognize. There are no P-waves, of course, because the atria are fibrillating, instead you see a squiggly baseline with irregularly spaced qrs complexes representing spontaneous contractions of the ventricles the ventricular activity is often described as irregularly irregular which can seem like a confusing term but really just refers to the fact that there's no method to the madness as it were for instance you could imagine an irregular heart rhythm that nevertheless repeated itself perhaps there's one second between each ventricular contraction, then three, then one, then three, repeating, you might describe that as a regularly irregular rhythm. The rhythm is definitely not normal, but there's a clear pattern. Both types of second-degree heart block could arguably fall under that regularly irregular label. Bigeminy, say, also has a clear pattern. But in atrial fibrillation, there's never any clear pattern, never any order to the chaos in terms of when the ventricles contract. So it's in that sense that the rhythm is irregularly irregular. Anyway, moving on. AFib is the most common sustained arrhythmia, period. Judging by the Framingham Heart Study, a long-lived individual's risk of developing AFib is at least 25%, whether male or female. So, one of the four people who listen to this podcast is probably going to develop AFib at some point. The incidence of AFib is strongly associated with age. The disease is associated with an increased risk of cardiac events, most famously, stroke, but also heart failure and dementia. Because of the strong association between AFib and stroke, any older individual who has a stroke is put on a 30-day heart monitor to evaluate for AFib, even if and when there's no prior history. As far as etiology, AFib is usually the result of long-standing risk factors like diabetes, obesity, hypertension, coronary artery disease, heart failure, sleep apnea, but of course it may also be set off by acute events. The acute events that can cause it include... Anything that causes a high catecholamine state, for example, stress or any infection. Anything that causes hypoxemia, for example, pulmonary embolism, pneumonia, a COPD flare, sleep apnea, etc. A number of drugs can cause AFib, including not only things you'd think of, like stimulants, like cocaine and amphetamines, but also alcohol. The increased likelihood of arrhythmia after binge drinking is what has historically been called the holiday heart. Thyrotoxicosis is, of course, another possible trigger, and there are many others, but much of the time there's no obvious trigger, and AFib is just something that happens, especially as you get older. I should mention that there can be a genetic predisposition as well. In the lady I was taking care of, her brand new atrial fibrillation presented as a sudden awareness of her heart pounding, associated with a mild discomfort in the chest. That's all palpitations are, of course, an awareness of the heart beating. Other symptoms that may be associated include lightheadedness, dizziness, shortness of breath, even syncope. On the other hand, many patients are totally asymptomatic, and the dysrhythmia is discovered incidentally. If a patient who already has significant heart disease develops AFib, that can sometimes lead to serious hemodynamic instability. And on the flip side, a patient with a normal heart can eventually develop a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy if they live in AFib long enough. So there's a pretty good variety in the ways AFib can present and the consequences it can have for the patient. A quick note on classification. We have the three P's paroxysmal, persistent, and permanent. Sometimes I'll see someone write p in a note, and I will have absolutely no idea what that means. So please don't do that. Afib that spontaneously resolves in less than seven days is considered paroxysmal. Afib that lasts longer than seven days is considered persistent. Permanent afib is a somewhat more nebulous term, but basically refers to persistent AFib that the patient and their doctor have agreed together to stop trying to convert. Some sources also use the term long-standing persistent AFib to designate AFib that has lasted for more than a year. Another terminological distinction to make is that between valvular and nonvalvular AFib, the former refers to AFib in the setting of rheumatic mitral valve disease, mitral valve stenosis, or a prosthetic valve. The latter term encompasses all other AFib. The last term you might hear is the romantic-sounding term lone AFib, but that term is obsolete and should no longer be used. All right, enough preamble. Let's move on to the management of this disease. Whether we're talking about acute or long-term management, the two halves of management are control of the rhythm itself and anticoagulation. You'll see what I mean. Let's start with acute management. The first truth to remember is that obviously unstable patients require immediate electrical cardioversion. That means actually slapping pads on the patient, turning the dial over to synchronize, as opposed to defibrillate, making sure there are little dots on the screen over each QRS complex, the dots reflect synchrony, and shocking the patient. This is done for very sick patients with AFib who are severely hypotensive as a result, or for patients in AFib in the setting of an acute MI, or decompensated heart failure. This is not something that happens too often, but it's something you might find yourself doing in the ED, or in the ICU, or for that very rare, unlucky floor patient. Much more often, the patient will be maybe a little uncomfortable from the palpitations, but hemodynamically stable, certainly not hypotensive. In fact, the lady I was taking care of was extremely hypertensive, with a systolic pressure in the 240s when she presented, these are the patients you will much more often have to manage in the acute setting. The primary weapons in your rate control arsenal are beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. Also amiodarone, but mainly those first three. Diltiazem is what we start with in our emergency room, and it's also what up-to-date suggests as an initial agent, so I would think of Dilt as your go-to. First you try a bolus or two, IV. 20 mg is roughly the dose you'll see, 0.25 mg per kilogram is technically the dose you should push. The goal here is to get the heart rate around or below 80. If that's achieved with a bolus or two of DILT, great. If not, it's time to start a drip. You start the drip at 5 mg per hour, and if you're not seeing a pressure and a heart rate you like after half an hour or so, you bump it up to 10 mg per hour. If you're still not satisfied, you bump it up to 15. Hopefully, these measures will be sufficient to achieve rate control, at least, in most people. If not, what to do next gets a little less clear. Up date recommends starting IV digoxin. Other sources argue that beta blockers are the next class to add, and that digoxin is only added if rate control can't be achieved with diltiazem and metoprolol together. Whatever the sequence, the rate control pathway basically converges on the provision of those three agents—diltiazem, metoprolol, and digoxin. I don't have enough experience yet to swear on it, but I'm pretty sure that rate control is achieved most of the time with DILT alone, and almost all of the time with only one or two agents—rarely will you have to provide all three. Okay, so you've controlled the rate. What happens next? Well, most of the time, the patient will spontaneously convert. That is, their rhythm will just pop over from AFib to regular sinus. Because of this, there's been a little bit of a movement in recent years not to aggressively pursue cardioversion, which generally refers to electrical cardioversion, that is, shocking the patient, so quickly, because so many patients with AFib will spontaneously convert within 24 to 48 hours so you could just give the patient time to convert. Generally, active cardioversion is reserved for patients with new AFib, or who are symptomatic, or whose rates are difficult to control. This is where antiarrhythmic drugs sometimes come in, and to be honest, I'm not sure exactly when they're used as opposed to or in order to complement electrical cardioversion. I do know that class 3 drugs like ibutilide and amiodarone, and class 1c drugs like flecainide and propafenone have the best proven efficacy. If you are ever using these agents, keep in mind that the class 3 drugs, sotalol and ibutilide are associated with a risk of torsades, which makes sense because their mechanism of action, potassium channel blocking, prolongs the QT interval so patients who get a butylide need to be monitored on telemetry for a little while. But anyway, my impression is that if you're going to cardiovert, electrical cardioversion is generally the way to go, which brings us to the other half of our management, anticoagulation. If the patient's had AFib for a while, greater than 48 hours, or for some unknown period of time, and you decide to cardiovert them, Interestingly, you have to anticoagulate them for three weeks before you attempt cardioversion. If that isn't done, if you don't have time for that, your other option is to do a transesophageal echo to rule out the presence of a left atrial appendage thrombus. Either way, any patient who does undergo cardioversion gets anticoagulation afterwards for four weeks because there's actually an increased risk of thromboembolic events after the restoration of sinus rhythm. As you can see, these steps fit into a nice little algorithm that depends on how long the AFib has been present. Less than 48 hours, no preconversion anticoagulation needed, but you still have to anticoagulate for four weeks after cardioversion. If the AFib has been present for greater than 48 hours or for an unknown amount of time, then you need three weeks of pre-conversion anticoagulation or an echo to rule out thrombus. And regardless, you still need four weeks of post-conversion anticoagulation. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, let's talk some specifics about anticoagulation. Needless to say, you can't talk about anticoagulation in AFib without invoking the Chad's VASC score. The CHADS-VASC score is a measure of stroke risk in patients with non-valvular AFib, and it guides anticoagulation management. To calculate it, you have to remember to imagine the silent little subscript 2s that come after the A and the S in CHADS, because you get 2 points for age greater than 75 years and 2 points for prior stroke. The other factors, going in order congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, vascular disease, age 65 to 74, and sex category, s little c, are each worth one point. You add up your patient's score, and if it's zero, no therapy is indicated. If it's one, maybe you just give aspirin. But if it's two or more for men, or three or more for women, you generally anticoagulate the patient and that means either warfarin or one of the NOACs, Apixaban, Eliquis, or Rivaroxaban, Xarelto. The other two NOACs that are approved for AFib are Adoxaban and Dabigatran, but I don't really see those used. For patients with valvular AFib, and please recall that refers specifically to AFib in the setting of rheumatic heart disease, mitral stenosis, and valve replacement, warfarin is your only option, the NOACs are not approved for valvular AFib. For AFib plus any other valvular lesion, NOACs are acceptable. Sometimes the pros of anticoagulation must be weighed against the risk of bleeding, the likelihood of which can be estimated by scores such as the has Hasblood. And it's worth keeping in mind that If you do anticoagulate a patient, they should not be on aspirin. That only leads to increased risk of bleeding and does not help improve outcomes in terms of ischemic events. There's a lot to know about the anticoagulant drugs I just mentioned. I won't go over all of the nuances here, but as a quick review, I will remind you that warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist, dabigatran is a direct thrombin inhibitor, and apixaban, rivaroxaban, and adoxaban are factor 10 inhibitors. This is actually easy to remember because the latter three all have the letter X in the name for factor 10, and you can pretend the D in dabigatran stands for direct, that is direct thrombin inhibitor. Warfarin, of course, is cheap and requires regular monitoring, and your target INR is 2-3. to It's also easily reversed. The NOACs do not require monitoring and have no labs by which you could monitor them. They're also not generally considered reversible, though very rare and expensive drugs do exist to reverse them in case the President of the United States is bleeding out or something. They have fancy names, too. Idarukizumab. Brand name Praxbind reverses Dibigatran, and andexinet alpha reverses Apixaban or Rivaroxaban. These drugs are probably not going to be in stock at your local VA. Indeed, these agents are so rare and obscure that andexinet is misspelled in the orange pocket medicine book that all residents know so well. But the point is, patients with AFib, whether paroxysmal, persistent, or permanent, are going to be on one of these drugs if their CHADS-VASC score is high enough. Again, that's greater than or equal to 2 for men, greater than or equal to 3 for women. Okay, that was a lot, and that was really only the basic information that you need to know about AFib. There are other treatment options too, such as catheter ablation, which zaps a small area of tissue in the heart in an attempt to cure the AFib, or straight up AV nodal ablation, which of course would require the implantation of a permanent pacemaker. It's also worth knowing that atrial flutter is generally managed very similarly to atrial fibrillation, and it also responds to catheter ablation and actually responds even better than AFib does. But I'm not going to go into detail about all that. I think we've covered enough for one day. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. The podcast should be available on many different podcasting platforms by now, so if you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review. It will help other listeners to find it. Thank you for putting up with this cold that I have. You may be able to hear it in my voice. Alright then, see you next time.